tonight on Arena. In TV reviews, we look at Smothered, John Lennon, Murder Without a Trial, and a new season of Vigil. And we speak with Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Cahill McNaughton. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Now, um, TV reviews first this evening, and uh, we have Jen Gannon and Chris Wasser in studio with me to look at what's what new TV series caught their attention during the week. First, we have a brand new comedy. It's called Smothered, and it comes from one of the writers of Shit's Creek. This is Monica Heisey, and here are the characters of Sammy and Tom meet on a night out at karaoke and start an O-strings-attached affair for a limited time on the condition that they will never speak to each other again after three weeks. Next, we have a brand new comedy about uh, a brand new documentary beg your pardon about the murder of John Lennon on December the 8th 1980 44 years ago in fact this Friday John Lennon Murder Without a Trial is narrated by Kiefer Sutherland and features exclusive eyewitness interviews and lastly the second series of the BBC drama Vigil last time we saw Saran Jones she was struggling to solve murder on a submarine this time she enters the secret world of drone warfare to catch the killer Jen Gannon and Chris Wasser as I say are with me in studio this evening let's start with Smothered which begins on Sky Comedy this Saturday this uh, Thursday I, I gave the basic plot there it is a kind of a let start a no strings uh, attached yeah. relationship that's what's at stake here it then. is like, and it's one of those things like uh, even when I read the premise um, and then started watching the pilot I was like haven't we kind of seen this before it felt like <clears throat> something like you'd vaguely have stumbled upon on Channel 4 in 2003 like we've had people have to make rom-coms uh, like those kind of comedies in a certain way to mm. grab your attention but I mean that is the thinly veiled premise but when it gets in going properly it's, it's not as in your face and as zany zillennial as that premise can come across it's a lot deeper than that and it's a lot simpler than that and it's a lot more fun in the way of it's just about a couple falling in love and that's as good as it gets for a rom-com to watch two people you know, become yeah. crazy about each other. And that's what, for me, was exciting and interesting about Smothered. And uh, another part of uh, one of the essentials or one of the possible essential ingredients to a rom-com is that they have to be chalk and cheese. Two couple, two people who are exactly the same. It's no fun watching them fall in love, Chris. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, the thing with Sammy is that she's just, you know, she's had enough of rotten ex-boyfriends and she's had enough of horrendous dating apps. Whereas with Tom, he hasn't been on any of these things and he seems to just have you know the one ex-wife as we learn and he is not interested in going out uh, his workmates practically have to beg him to join them for a, a, a karaoke session af- after work and it's in this karaoke bar that he encounters uh, uh, Sammy mm. and they meet and you know she's doing shots at the bar he's kind of nursing a point he wants to go home you think nothing's going to happen between these two but it's when they ask one another to do it right. that the sparks begin to fly alright the sparks start to fly and then they uh, have a chat about how the relationship might work so let's listen to Sammy Sammy, played by Danielle Vitalis, and Tom, played by John Pointing, setting out the, the ground rules for what is to follow. Well, so what counts as details? What counts as details? just want like a clear definition of what this is. You sound like an accountant. We do my taxes. I don't work in tax. <laughs> Mate, we're not talking about that. How is I don't work in tax too intimate a piece of information? Well, we're avoiding personal details. Anything you might ask someone on a date. 
Well, I mean, I don't really go on them, so. And now I'm not going to ask why, because that's details. Details, okay, yeah. yes. Like, okay, so what's your core wound? I mean, I don't know, I keep it light. I don't know. What's the highest you've ever been above sea level? Who's your first crush? What's the craziest thing you've ever done? Okay. Um, so once, uh, I got off with this girl uh, in a karaoke bar, and she lured me into this insane scheme full of fake rules. Sex must have been great. Let's stay over it. I don't think it's an insane plan. I think it's smart, mature even. And I do understand it is unconventional, so I'd like to thank you. Uh, give you a token of my appreciation. What's this? It's my pants. What? <laughs> Why? What am I going to do with these? Whatever you want. It's a gift for you. Sammy played by Danielle Vitalis there and Tom played by John Pointing in a scene from quite early on in the new series that we're speaking about, the Stephen Sky comedy series uh, called Smothered. And yeah, at the beginning of that, I said, even as we were listening to that, Jen Gannon, you know, it, it, the zany music underneath, yes. just in case you didn't know it was a rom-com. They're Here's, crazy. Yeah. She's crazy. But then it does take that little twist and you sense the chemistry when mm. he says what's the craziest thing you've ever done and of course he's talking about meeting her Yeah, and you think oh maybe there's more to this than meets the ear and I always think like with comedies especially you should just let the pilot go all the pilot is trying to do is introduce you to the characters in whatever way that they can and you know the, the quickest shorthand possible mm. Mm. so if you're judging it off the pilot, you know, it, it doesn't feel great. It feels rocky. But as you get into it, as the series goes along, everything calms down more. And really, it's just about Sammy is trying to trust a man in the first place, like only to keep discovering these new challenging information about Tom's life. Like as in he has an ex-wife, he has a child. And then Tom is trying to loosen up and see if he can balance like, you know, single dadship with this all consuming, that all consuming excitement that comes and exhilaration that comes with a new romance. And when it starts to, you know, unfold those kind of issues and settles down a bit, that's when it kind of, it, it becomes funnier and it becomes a lot more watchable. And uh, Danny Vitalis, Danielle Vitalis here as Sammy and John pointing as Tom. Obviously, chemistry is kind of essential yeah. if this relationship is to keep us watching. Is it there? I think it is, yeah. Yes. I think the two of them are wonderful together. And, and Jen is right, as the series progresses, they do work better together. I think it's a little bit of a, a Frankenstein's monster of a rom-com because at times it is quite modern it is quite ballsy reminded me in some aspects of um, of Catastrophe by Sharon Horgan and Rob Delaney and Monica Heisey has been saying that's the series co-creator that you know whenever she's been telling people about the show that she's been working on that they've said oh that sounds a little bit like Catastrophe mm. um, so it does have a very modern edge but at the same time it also has something of a traditional even at times Richard Curtis uh, uh, angle to it because it does feel at, at times as though look at the way this couple meets and fall in love like that it's, it's, it's a bit too quick it's a bit too kind of uh, uh, fantastical and look at the the quirky housemates that that uh, that Sammy has someone's complaining about the milk someone is after cooking up this weird meal I thought that's a little bit like Four Weddings it's a little bit like Notting Hill mm. and also just if you think about the plot too much and if you think about the idea that how can two people spend all of this time together over three weeks and not ask any personal questions or not find out anything about the other person that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever saying that 
But that's what rom-coms are built on. Ridiculous premises. That's what rom-coms are built on. You need the premise so that yeah. it lasts for And six also, episodes. I just think that those kind of secondary characters, they're the scaffolding. That who, the, who, who do we get so there, for example? So we've a load of secondary characters. Like, I mean, you have all, the obviously the flatmates. And one of them is played by Rebecca Lucy Taylor, who is the pop star self-esteem. And she kind of plays this dominatrix, almost dominatrix character that is living with Sammy. And she's the kind of person that is absolutely no nonsense, obviously. And also finds her new relationship with this very, you know, quote unquote, boring young dad, like to be, you know, crazy to her that her friend Sammy would be with this man. So she's kind of a little bit mm. like the fly in the ointment, but also has this great sense of, you know, sense of self and sense of purpose. Um, uh, and I think, you know, that's true to the rom-com because, you know, Fleabag would be nothing without the sister Claire. Even, you know, something like Catastrophe would be nothing without, you know, the nosy friend Fran. Like you need those characters to sustain the, the rom-com, to uh, sustain the coupling. Yeah. And then you've got someone who's a massive star. Blair Underwood appears yeah. in this. You know, from and LA Law and Sex in the City and he's Sammy's dad which I was like I can't believe he's old enough to be Sammy's dad <laughs> but he is nearly 60 and, and he looks I, like her older brother and we don't, we don't want to give too much away maybe I'm not sure if it's given too much away to say who Ashling B is but she's important within the story here as well Chris yeah I mean look they're not going to get Ashling B to just like play a walk on role and I won't say who she is but you know look the, the character of Sammy reveals a little bit too much about the relationship that she has with Tom to this Gillian character um, but again like the, even though you, you've got something you even though you've got someone like Ashley B kind of having a very small part in this, everyone has a very small part in this because yeah. the best thing about it is that each episode is only 20 minutes and I feel like this show which is quite enjoyable which is quite snappy and does have that chemistry between the leads it should be held up and shown to other channels and streamers that not every comedy now has to be 40 or 45 minutes long. This is a comedy that because of its short length and because of its succinct plot, you know, the joke rate is higher. Um, yeah. There's a likability about it. It doesn't overstay its welcome. And also, it's just something that you can watch while you're getting ready for something. It's that kind of television. I found it quite enjoyable, actually. And oh, right. it's completely bingeable, too. Yeah. I'd watched it all in one sitting yeah. um, and you definitely will just get hooked in. And given you mentioned Fleabag, any hot priests? Or is there that, is yeah. no hot priests. No hot priests. <laughs> Not an essential ingredient for a rom-com just yet. Should oh, be, though. All right. So um, you, you're, you're, you're saying a yes to this one? Oh, so yeah. Exactly. Keep going with it, yeah. I think, you know, for people like for Christmas viewing, especially like if you're looking for something that is, you know, it's the thing about it is it zings along, it zips right. along. And that's the best thing you can have for a comedy. Uh, stars. Yeah, let's do stars. Out of five. Out of five. Three and a half. Three and a half. <laughs> I think I'll go with a four. Go with good solid four. Right. Sky Comedy is where you will find Smothered and you'll find it there from uh, December the 7th, which would be the day after tomorrow. Is that correct? Let us move on then to um, the John Lennon murder without a trial. Um, do you know what? I think if we play the opening narration, we'll get a good sense of what the setup is here. Kiefer Sutherland is the narrator at the opening of this documentary. On the 8th of December, 1980, John Lennon was murdered outside his home in New York City. Incredibly, for a crime of this magnitude, the case never went to trial. Jury selection was supposed to begin today, but once inside the courtroom, it was clear there would be no jury trial. So the facts of what happened have never been publicly established. You see, the whole world knows who John Lennon was, and now we're trying to get our grips. We're trying to get a picture of his alleged killer. And where there's darkness, conspiracy theories have grown. These FBI files clearly reveal Lennon was considered a political threat. 
steps were taken on the highest level to do something about the Lenin problem. Now, after 40 years, witnesses speak for the very first time. Time's passed. Put it on the record. I don't know. Once I'm done. Ultimately, it's a journey into the mind of a murderer. In the case of the assassination of a musical genius. And one of the most outspoken peace campaigners the world has ever seen. Nobody's ever given peace a complete chance. Gandhi tried it, Martin Luther King tried it, but they were shot. Where there's darkness, conspiracy mm. theories grow. <laughs> he kind of he lays it on with a the trowel there um, about what we're going to get here. Do we get a whole bundle of conspiracy theories? Is it a true crime series? It's essentially, Jen? It's very serious. Like, and it's very, you know, yes, we understand this case. You know, it's very tragic, obviously. It's it, Mm. poured over historically so much that I think, do we really need a three-part, three-hour documentary doing this again? And, you know, it's it's extremely detailed. And But by episode two, when they do start kind of going into conspiracy theories about the CIA involvement and Project Monarch, and then when they bring in John Hinckley, who had the assassination attempt on Reagan and trying to link it to Mark Chapman's obsession with Catcher in the Rye when they were both loved Catcher in the Rye. But at yeah, the same so time, two, it's kind two of potential dropped. assassins read the Catcher in the Rye. One book, There's a yeah, shock. a popular yeah. book that was on, you know, high school curriculum, I think, mm. at the time. Like, But at the same, you know, and then they kind of drop these subjects then as it goes through in, in, the, in the second episode. So you're not, you're wondering yeah. why. And then there's a lot of, which is my own bugbear, uh, talking heads, which, you know, with some eyewitnesses, yes, they've spoken for the first time. But at the same time, it felt it had that real unsolved mysteries or, you know, true crime documentary mm. that we've seen on Sky or you've seen on Netflix before, that kind of edge to it. Whereas I think when it works, it's just, a, for me, it's just about the archive footage and that real footage outside the Dakota building or at the vigil in Liverpool. I think when you see the real people and, and the effect that this crime had on, you know, Lennon's mm. fanship or whatever, I think that's more interesting. Yeah, although there were there were some things in this I asked that, that kind of interested me. The idea that there, there's a taxi driver here who was on the scene, mm. just who came up to the building just as the shot was fired. Yeah. There are also two workers from the building itself. I think the porter and the concierge from inside the building. So th those are very interesting eyewitness accounts uh, to hear because it didn't go to trial. So therefore, we didn't hear those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it didn't go to trial because Mark Chapman, yeah. you know, he didn't flee the scene. He stood there. He waited yeah. to be apprehended. Uh, mystery solved. People saw him do it. He, pled, he pleaded guilty and he's still in prison. So there is re no real mystery here. So you're basically spending two hours with director Rob Coldstream and his team looking for something that's not there. And the interviews with the eyewitnesses, you've got Jay Hastings, who was the concierge at the Dakota. You've got Joe Many, who was the porter. Uh, um, you've got there Richard Peterson, the New York taxi driver. They are fascinating accounts because these are people who saw this senseless crime happen. And the fact that they hadn't spoken about it before, one of the interviewees, Joe, uh, Joe Many, he says he just didn't want trouble. He just didn't want to go and, you know, sit in front of a camera. And, and, and also, he didn't want to relive this traumatizing mm. experience of having the most famous musician in the world die in your arms. He didn't want to talk about that. And you can understand that. Unfortunately, what, what could have been a very moving, fascinating account is just 
it, it's kind of spoiled a little bit by this overbearing, ominous score and by Kiefer Sutherland's narration, which just seems a little bit superfluous <clears throat> to requirements. It doesn't really add anything to it. And and I don't and, and go and going back to those conspiracies as well. That stuff really shouldn't be given any air. It, it just doesn't really fit in with 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 the, the you know the the story and the legacy of John Lennon. It doesn't really fit in with what Mark Chapman did. He just wasn't a well man who basically murdered uh, what he you know says was his idol it just doesn't make any sense there is I know evidence to show that John Lennon was considered a national threat or a threat to national security but I mean if Nixon's dog had looked at him funny he would have considered the dog a threat to national security I was going to say I'd say you'd find there were a lot of people considered a threat to national security that stuff should not be in a very serious documentary however Jen you did mention this idea of the the real fans and the vigil that Mm. uh, in Liverpool and I think in New York in New York as well and I think there was stuff there that you did like yeah I mean I think look I think if they had knitted that together with narration over like like, say someone like Elliot Mintz who you know was the spokesperson for John in New York at the time and his recollection about Yoko at the time I thought that was interesting mm. um, they could have all been stitched together with narration without these talking heads and, and the, I, the ominous music exactly and it would have made it more impactful I think something like The Princess that that documentary that was directed by Ed Perkins that came out last year and I think that was the most immersive take on the Princess Diana story I'd ever seen because it was just footage real archival footage stitched together of her life of her progression through to the monarchy yeah. and, and afterwards and it made such a, a massive Massive impression on me because it was without, you know, it t- there was no interviews, there was no superfluous interviews. Right. It was just the facts. It was just moving through the facts. And I think something like that would be more helpful than having someone like David Suggs, who was Chapman's lawyer. Like you're never going yeah. to understand the motivations behind this this lone figure. And I think the documentary is chasing a ghost, or it's chasing yeah. you know somebody that was you know an unremarkable man who wanted to become infamous. Stars on this one. To Chris, yeah, it might be similar. I mean, Rob Coldstream again, the director, said that he didn't want to create a sensational true crime epic. He didn't want to create something for entertainment purposes, and I think he has done that. Uh, you know, it might have been well intentioned, but it's just oh. it just made me a bit queasy at times. So I'm going to go with two. Solid two, or a, a, a measly two from yeah. you as well. It sounds like, and that's on Apple TV Plus from tomorrow, uh, December the sixth, at uh, three episodes, as Jen and Chris have described to us there. And finally, then. Vigil uh, begins, uh, season two begins on uh, this Sunday on BBC One, 9pm. A review embargo here, so we kind of have to preview and let's look back, I suppose. Chris, uh, remind remind us of Vigil season one, which was, you can't get more locked room than the submarine, can you? Exactly, yeah. Vigil season one was actually set on a submarine called the Vigil. And and the second season is not going to be set in a submarine called the Vigil. It's not going to be set in anything called the Vigil. Mm. So I find the name a little bit weird, but it was actually two years ago it started Saran Jones as a uh, detective a grieving detective who is called uh, from Glasgow to investigate a mysterious death of a chief petty officer on board a Royal Navy nuclear submarine it's the job of the people on this submarine to uh, apparently protect uh, civilians from World War 3 and as I say you have this officer on board who's found dead in his quarters and it looks like a suspected heroin overdose Um, but still an investigation is required and once Saran Jones' character DCI Silva Amy Silva uh, is on board 
George and I remember a, fast, a, a fabulous sequence as well to try you know you, you, you think to yourself how do you get someone on board a submarine with great difficulty actually <laughs> um, but once she's on board um, she begins to, to see that this is actually this could be a murder case but also one of the yeah. other fascinating aspects of the, of the first season was that this DCI is ve- quite claustrophobic um, so as a result the, so the whole series was kind of shot and designed to just make the viewer so uncomfortable as, as claustrophobic yeah. as, as she uh, was was being portrayed to be so just maybe give us the basic setup and then we listen to a little bit of a trailer from it uh, Jen well basically like uh, they've brought season in two, this season is, two they've brought in the remit and it really is about you know this aspect of the British military operations British like arms dealing drone weaponry and the partnerships it's made in the Middle East so kind of prescient alright uh, and here's a, a sense of what's happening or will happen Seven murders on Scottish soil. We need to visit the base in Mujan. But you're okay with it. Well, I'm not due for another two months, and you put me on this case. You love Mujan. Nobody tells the truth there either. Somebody told them what we were doing here. Find out who. We're all suspects. Yes, of course we are. To kick her head down. Are you asking me if I did this? Why were you there? Those drones are tools for oppression. My dad didn't do anything wrong. Police! What evidence do you even have? I have enough. You should try to complete your work quickly. They are lying to you. Amen! Look up. Come home. I can't. That's a little uh, teaser trailer for Vigil Season 2, which starts on BBC this Sunday at 9pm. Chris Wasser and Jen Gannon with me in studio this evening. Looking forward to this week's television. Um, uh, Saran Jones and the partner, who's the partner, the life partner as well? Rose Leslie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you can hear there that the the domestic versus the professional is part of the the remit here. Was that there the last time? Just towards the end. Yeah, We figured out that her partner, um, Kirsten, was expecting. Yeah, but but towards the end of it the last time they said it all went off the rails. So what do they need to get back on the rails uh, which went off the rails at the end of season one, Chris? I think you you, you can keep telling the viewers that, you know, oh, this is the murderer or this is is how we're going to resolve the case over here and then, no, lead them on a completely different path. Uh, Yeah, it kind of just lost control of of the story a little bit but uh, this new one is, it's, you know, it's a lot more grounded. It's literally on land. It's going to be based Mm -hmm. between Scotland and and the Middle East. Um, It is going to explore uh, the... uh, personal relationship between Silva and between Longacre uh, who are actually expecting a baby together so that's going to work really well because you, you, you'll have a, you'll have the, this case where Silva is kind of trying to get Kirsten her partner to, to take time off she doesn't want her in the middle of this case even though she, she needs her um, uh, yeah I think it, they just need to keep an eye on, on those red herrings because it's it's a murder mystery and it can have fun with it but you don't want to lose it's the viewers it's such a well. line of duty yeah. premise yeah. and like that that's it's by the production company that are you know have were responsible for Line right. of Duty and they love a red herring they love a yeah, red herring yeah. and I just I do wonder how it will it will survive on dry land because it's a pretty nebulous subject it's not as contained as you know physically contained as you're in this submarine and you know that was coming off the back of we were all going through lockdown we could all understand yeah. with that, that feeling what that feeling was like so I wonder will it hit home with audiences as well will it have the Remember. pull this time but I love Saran Jones yeah. I've loved yeah. her since she was Karen and Corrie chasing you know <laughs> Steve around with a shoe at his wedding so I mean I think her and Sarah Lancashire the, the, the guiding lights the shining lights of 
of British drama. So you're in a safe yeah. pair of hands with Sarah her. Sarah Lancashire isn't in this, though. No, you're but like saying, she's yeah, yeah. Saran Jones is on her level, I think. So Saran Jones is one of the big cast members here. Who else uh, do we have? Maybe somebody's going to develop agoraphobia. I'm thinking as well. Above <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've got you've got the Grey Scott in there as well. Um, and we've only seen a few uh, characters introduced in, in in the first episode. So I think we're gonna we're gonna see see more later on. But it's also a series where you don't want to get to attached to somebody to anyone to right. anyone we saw we saw that in season one <laughs> okay so don't get attached to any of the characters so you've seen episode one but you're not allowed to talk no no I don't think the BBC yeah. would mind us saying though that it is quite it's, Compelling. it's enjoyable <laughs> ah, okay yeah. I think they'll take that I think they'll, <laughs> take, that, yeah. they'll take that so if you had to give expectation stars on we'll, it, go, we'll, go, we'll go with three and a half expectation stars and what I, do you I will agree I 100% agree so yeah. three and a half of, yes. of expectation <laughs> that, that might grow as the weeks go on that's Jen Gannon and Chris Wasser there speaking to us about the upcoming television Smothered begins on Sky Comedy this Thursday John Lennon Murder Without a Trial will be on Apple TV Plus from tomorrow and Vigil stars on B- starts on BBC One this Sunday. In the documentary I Dream in Photos, the Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist Cahill McNaughton says he's chosen he says his chosen career, you don't see the bullets. His work has brought him from assignments close to home in Northern Ireland to conflict zones like Kashmir and Myanmar. And in much of his work, he is an unblinking witness to human trauma. Winner of the Pulitzer Prize in 2018, in winning that inadvertently triggered an extended pause in his career when the accolade caused the Indian authorities where he he was based at the time to revoke his visa. This led him to return home to Cushendall in County Antrim and gave him time to reflect on what he has borne witness to over the years. This period of time is the subject of Gary Lennon's intimate feature, which is in selected cinemas right now. It's called A Dream and Photos. I'm delighted to have uh, Gary Lennon with me here in studio and joining us on the line is photojournalist Cahill McNaughton. Um, First of all, Cahill, a Pulitzer Prize winner is is a, a, winning a Pulitzer Prize is no mean feat. But this uh, documentary starts with that wonderful uh, admission that you make about dreaming in photographs. Maybe actually explain how early you and how soon in your young life you started to dream in photographs. Well, how, how's it going? Uh, I would say probably around uh, the age of nineteen or twenty, uh, whenever I had spent a couple of years uh, serving my time as a as an apprentice photographer uh, the passion uh, really turned to an obsession and uh, that's that's where everything uh, really kicked in yeah, and were, were they pleasant dreams those early ones dreaming in photographs like how how immediate was it were you, were you actually seeing a still snapshot of something happening yeah well at the time, I was just—I uh, was studying so many other great photographers. I was looking at their pictures all the time, and I was—I was looking at all the, like Time Magazine, Newsweek, and everything, uh, any journal I could find, and and studying uh, composition. 
and it got to the point yeah when i was i was uh i was seeing photographs in my sleep <laughs> probably not normal for a 19 year old boy but yeah interesting though you're already pointing out that it was like time magazine and the like Cahill. so it was photojournalism as opposed to uh, i suppose if i might refer to it as a, a more artistic side of of photography yes composition and light and all of those things are important in photojournalism as well but there is an added layer into it because of the journalistic side of it definitely definitely no i am a fan of uh, art photography but uh yeah what what captured me at the start was you know the greats like larry burroughs and don mccullen where there was a yeah there was there was a story to be told you know you were you were looking at a picture but you were you were being told a story as well Growing up in Northern Ireland, do you think that was part of that uh, side of the the career development? A hundred percent. There's uh, no no getting away from that because I my uh, training ground was uh, literally uh, the north of Ireland during the tail end of the troubles. So that's that's really where I cut my teeth. So um, uh, Gary, as I say, is, is with us in studio here as well, Cahill. How did you come across uh, Cahill's work, Gary? And what was it that set you off to make this uh, documentary? Because a documentary about a photographer, yeah, you've got great visuals in all of that, but they're stills. So you're going to have to find action and story elsewhere. Yeah, I'd been familiar with his work. And then I, when he won the Pulitzer, I became that bit more familiar with it. But then after he won it, it was a you know it was a little while afterwards that there was a series of articles in newspapers, um, and they had these kind of cryptic titles, which you know I gave up the best job in the world. And as someone who's a similar age, it'd be like me winning an Academy Award and then just walking away from my career, or you know a recording mm. artist leaving after just winning the Grammys. It didn't really make kind of sense to me. So I was um, I was intrigued by it, and I, and and that was the kind of the catalyst for for how we started off and how we got in contact together. It was it was reaching out to him after after reading those articles. And then in terms of um, how we were going to try and bring them to, you know, a bit more life on screen, mm. I think there's a kind of a, a, there's a, you often see photography documentaries and they kind of go into two styles, which are, you know, a look back at the master's work and you've got a series of experts and it's a bit bland in my opinion. And then another one that has started to happening these days is they kind of throw a war photographer into a, into a battle zone or something like that and they follow him in the middle of things. Mm. But I thought we had something different uh, w with Cahill. I thought there was there was both um, a contemporary story and quite unique. You know, why would you leave in the middle of your the height of your career at a point where he could kind of get any any job he wanted? And then at the same time, we were able to reflect on his art and his approach to mm. photography. So we've kind of intercut those two narratives. In, in the one documentary. And the other aspect I think that is important here, Cahill, is yes, you might give us the, the background to that um, <laughs> revoking of your visa in, in India and how and why that came about. At the moment, you were presented with the, with the Pulitzer Prize, but there's also a family story that we'll come to after that that I think is an important part of this as well. Talk to us about what you were doing in India at that time when, when the Pulitzer Prize was won and why you annoyed what it was you were doing that you think annoyed the authorities there so much, Carl. Well, basically, I was just doing my job as a, as a journalist and I was highlighting what was uh, happening and is still happening in the Kashmir region of India. And after uh, receiving the, the Pulitzer, then it uh, shed a lot more uh, light from the rest of the world on the subject. And uh, the Indian government didn't take too kindly to this. So they, 
they decided to uh, deal deal with the problem face on, and uh, they were quite smart about things because rather than kick me out of the country, they waited until I was out of the country and then they wouldn't let me back in. So uh, kudos to them for uh, uh, an interesting way of uh, yeah. dealing with dealing with the issue. And you also draw uh, within the documentary itself, Cahill, you, you draw um, parallels uh, to the Kashmiri situation and the situation that you grew up in in Northern Ireland. Definitely. Uh, it's what, what drew me to uh, Kashmir, really, because we did have uh, uh, a photographer based there, so there wasn't really any need for me to go there. But uh, the story was one that one that uh, intrigued me and uh, the fact that uh, it was a, a an area that had, you know, was divided and was under what some would call an occupation. Uh, yeah, I could see a lot mm. of a lot of similarities. And the specifics of the images that you had taken uh, had taken that were annoying uh, the Indian authorities uh, at the time. Um, maybe maybe talk to us a little bit because some of the some of the pictures that we see from that period of time they are absolutely heartbreaking. I'm thinking in particular of you know one picture. You, you, I think it's a seven or an eight year old, very young boy, basically a, a, a child soldier, and you you draw comparisons with your own son who was in and around the same age at the time. Yeah, well, I I was photographing. I took a series of portraits. I think that which was the the straw that broke the. Uh, the camel's back of uh, militants or terrorists or freedom fighters, whatever you wish to call them, and uh, members of the security forces. And uh, I was drawing parallels between the two and how similar they looked with their masks and riot shields and guns and knives mm. and whatever, and how they were all of the same age. And uh, yeah, they were the same people, but they were just wearing different costumes and uh, from the same areas. And there was something about that that reminded me of home as well, because a lot of these guys were were doing it. You know, they had dreams and aspirations of being doctors and teachers and whatever. But, you know, whenever uh, something like they said, basically, they had no option but to to uh, fight, fight for the, their, their own freedom. And one, and, of the, yeah. one of the things you talk about within the, the documentary itself as well, Cahill, is that, you know, when you're trying to capture a moment, like uh, at one point you're watching a riot and obviously a riot is full of action and things being thrown and, and people constantly on the move. You're looking for, for a still moment within all of that. You talk about things actually slowing down. Just ex- talk me through a little bit of that process. What it is you do to get that still moment in the midst of, in inverted commas, uh, chaos? Well, over time, I've learned that uh, you, you know, if you're put into that situation, if you just come off the street, you're going to get excited. Your heart rate's going to increase. You're going to run about. You'll get caught up in the moment. And I found early on in my career that once you get caught up in the moment and you run around and start taking pictures of everything in a a haphazard way, generally, whenever everything calms down and you go to look at your work, you haven't really photographed anything. You've, you know, you've just uh, taken random pictures of uh, events that were happening. So the thing is to actually slow down, just calm down and start being very methodical and picking pictures individually, just look at a spot, see a picture, take it. Take your time, move to another spot, take another picture. Of course, this is all happening in uh, thousands of a second, but Mm. you have to try and remain as calm as possible. 
And uh, yeah, that's 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 key to 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 working in these situations. The other thing you mentioned, and this is specifically in and around the Rohingya people fleeing uh, from Myanmar to Bangladesh. I, I think it was the third such uh, essentially um, displacement of these people. Of course, this is happening right now today in many places uh, around the world. I was struck by uh, you talked about the, the, the hundreds of thousands of people fleeing the country, you you watching this happening, tens of thousands of children in the midst of it and the most uh, noticeable thing for you or the thing that hit, struck you most was the silence of that movement. Yeah, uh, well anybody knows that uh, if you've got children yourself or uh, if you're around children you know, they're noisy, children are noisy they like to, when they're happy they're noisy when they're sad they're noisy, they like to make noise and they laugh and they cry and uh, so, you know, I wasn't expecting to hear laughter but after three or four days I realised there was there was something missing and it was just noise of any sort there was very little crying, there was no laughter and there was no smiling uh, just blank expressions of people that you know, just empty shells of people walking around and once i realized that that's that's what was uh that's the element that was missing uh, i couldn't unsee it and just everywhere i looked mm-hmm. it just you know it's like you're walking in a walking around in a horror movie with the sound turned down and it struck me then uh, coming back to you gary lennon director of the the documentary i dream in photos with me here in studio it struck me that you picked up on that i, I, I presume very consciously the movie uh, your documentary film itself is very silent. Yes, we hear Cahill talking and we hear a few other voices along the way, notably Cahill's uh, dad and his son Dara is in there as well. But silence is a vital part of what you did in the documentary too. Yeah, I think a couple of reasons for, for that. The, the first one would maybe just to reflect Cahill's kind of uh, contemplative stage that, that we find him in dur- during the course of the documentary. And I think another reason we did it was that it allows us to see his work and with a little bit less distraction. Mm. And um, it's it's not a loud documentary. It's uh, it's not a busy documentary. But I would also think, you know, that the score is both subtle and uh, powerful that in some respects you almost don't notice it. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's, it is very much, it's it's the pictures, but of course you have some great photographs and pictures to, doing doing that work for you. I mentioned, Cahill, that there's a family aspect to, to this and it's 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 uh, multi-generational in that when you came home, when you were forced home uh, from India uh, when, when, the, when the visa was revoked at the time of the awarding of the Pulitzer Prize, you came back to Cushendall, things slowed down slowed down there was a hiatus but then there were there were family events not not least of which was um, your mother's illness uh, and your father I think just growing older how did that generation and indeed being present and close to your own son again who you had been obviously away from when you were travelling abroad uh, at work how do you think that has fed into the last three or four years of your life? Yeah well that, that was a key a key aspect of everything uh it would have been enough to be dealing with uh, the events from uh, being kicked out of India. But then uh, these other events made me take stock of just, you know, what mm. what I had sacrificed before and uh, what I needed to do now and changes I had to make and changes I had to make very quickly to my life 
because they were visibly uh, disappearing in front of me. I'm, ta- I'm referencing my, my mother having Alzheimer's. So I had to, it forced me into making a, a tough de- decision, but a decision that was going to be made regardless, that I had to come home and spend as much time as possible with my mum before she uh, before she no longer really knew how I was. Yeah, and there's a heartbreaking moment when you when you describe one of those awful awful moments between your mum, your dad, and yourself when she she doesn't know who's who's in the room with her. However, as I was watching it, and at one point along the way, maybe about three quarters of the way through, you say something that that's it, I'm done. Uh, that fella's not done. He couldn't be done. He has too much. He has too much to show us. At, a, at a, earlier on, you talk about you're a voice for the people who don't have a voice. You 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 are back in action now. What what brought you back in, into into the the world of photojournalism again? <coughs> Excuse me. Well. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, well. One thing was the incident you were talking about with my mother, whenever she no longer recognised who it was, and then uh, at the same around the same time, I was offered a, I was approached about a role. <coughs> Excuse me. Do you want to get a drink uh, of water there? If you want to get a drink of water, and I just I'll, I'll talk briefly to, yeah, to Gary to give you a chance to, do, to get you to get your breath back. Um, the, the way the film is shot, that mixture of the the still photographs from Cahill's own work and then these um, just Cahill talking directly to to camera. There is a simplicity about that which again echoes the stillness of the still photograph. I guess that was in your mind Gary. It was and we also tried to reflect his style of photographs the way he um, he's got an archive of about 8,000 maybe maybe more mm. um, and then after a while when you're just going through these this vast archive suddenly you start recognising all of them as a very distinct style. So we tried to mirror that in, in the way we framed the camera. And um, we also then, wanted, we wanted to keep it simple so it wouldn't distract. But then we also then added an extra layer of, of these kind of verite kind of observational scenes, especially with the family, um, when he was with his son, his, his yeah. dad. And so we, we tried with those combinations of techniques and styles to be able to to pull his inner thoughts out f- from him. Um, well, certainly, I felt I knew the man that I had no knowledge of at all previous to this document. I felt I knew him a lot better. So uh, hopefully, Cahill, yeah, the, the throat is cleared and we can, I can go to my final question, <laughs> which, which is you were, you were talking there about that moment of your mother was part of what sent you back. You talk at another stage about the, the balance between empathy and being removed from the scene, because some of the pictures that you've taken are so harrowing, I can only imagine how they are imprinted in your own memory as well as uh, uh, any of us viewers who have seen them. What is that balance and how do you manage to maintain that as, as you are on your current assignments, wherever they are? Uh, well, it's difficult to, uh, it's very difficult to put, you know, to explain exactly what it is, but there's a, there's a mantra I sort of live by, and uh, Gary's heard this a few times now, but whenever I'm taking a photo, uh, I, I always think to myself, uh, what what would my mother think if she was here? And so if I am happy with how I am uh, re- acting and reacting to the, the subject, and then, then that's how I'm able to... Uh, I'm able to sleep at night, basically. Yeah. yeah. 
and you're you're telling their story, but you're telling it visually. Cahill, thanks so much for being with us tonight and uh, continued success. Hope that all is well with your family in these difficult times as well. And thanks also to Gary Lennon for being with us this evening. I Dream in Photos is in Selected Cinemas now and it will be part of our film reviews on Thursday night's programme. In August 1823, the Royal Hibernian Academy in Dublin received its first modest annual grant and its Charter of Incorporation. In her latest book, From Ten Till Dusk, art critic Christine Leach tells the story of its tw- in 12 inventive snapshots, 12 very different pieces in tone and style, sometimes with characters hopscotching across from one narrative to the next, telling the history, that is, of the RHA. Christine manages to touch on all aspects of the RHA, from artists to art, critics to politics, architecture to the building, to its funding problems and debt, social concerns of the era, people and personalities at its heart in this very lively and creative approach. Delighted to be joined by Christine Leach from our Cork studio uh, this evening. I believe, Christine, this started out, um, I, you thought, I'm going to tell 12 stories. Six of them are going to be about men involved in the RHA. Six of them are going to be about women involved in the RHA. And it'll be perfectly gendered, balanced, and that'll be that. It went off in a totally different direction. Oh, it did. All right. Yeah. So um, I, I, was, um, I was asked to pitch an idea for this book because the RHA turned 200 in 2023. Um, and they were interested in having a bicentenary book. Um, and I said, oh, you know, whatever I would write, I would want it to be gender balanced because gender is um, one of the aspects of the RHA that has been a constant kind of question and a bit of a battle um, over the years. So I thought, yeah, I um, I had a limited amount of time to do the research and there's so much material there. But I thought I can do a book of 12 chapters. It will be 12 stories and there will be six men and six women. But um, as you say, when I sat down to write them, I really realised that was a very prescriptive way of looking at it <laughs> and uh, not as interesting as what I ended up doing. Yeah, because you, t- you tell various <laughs> stories about various people involved across various periods in time and all of them in a very different style. But you do say in your introduction as well that you used to think that the important question was who is the RHA for? Now you've, you've come to the idea that answering the question who is the RHA is probably more important. So who is the RHA? What is the RHA? What is it for? Oh, my goodness. So, you know, I think what emerged for me in looking at the material in the archives, and I use newspaper archives a lot as well in, the, in researching this book, um, is that the RHA is the people that are in the RHA and the people that make it up. And over time, that, sh- that has shifted immeasurably. So it was founded in 1823, essentially as a gentleman's club, really. It was 14, you know, well-off uh, white men who sat down and said, we are the Irish art establishment. We are going to set ourselves up as, in this way. Um, and you come all the way to now and the last chapter goes right up to uh, the present day when Abigail O'Brien was elected the very first female president in uh, 2018. So you go from this very exclusive gentleman's club um, to, you know, it makes these leaps and bounds um, in many different ways. But one of them is the addition of uh, the allowance of women into the academy, but also, you know, this broader concept of what the academy can be. So just supposed to answer your question, who is the RHA? It's the people that make it. And what I wanted to do with this book, it's not 
not really a book about art. It's a mm. book about artists. So with that comes the fact that artists are human beings. They are full of um, passions and biases and ambitions and all sorts of things. And so in this book, we have these various stories of jostlings for position of power, um, you know, people with particular ideas about what the RHA should be, um, trying to make it that. Um, and as you said, there's stories of, you know, financial mm. problems. There's all sorts of things. And so really what I was looking for was interesting people. And I suppose what happened in the end I had looked at six men, six women, as you said, but what had really what had really intrigued me were particular years across the 200 years. So there were certain years in which very interesting things happened um, within the history of yeah. the RHA. And I stuck with the years I had originally chosen, but I told very different stories. Yeah, and it starts off in, in many ways with a quite a traditional story at the very beginning, Francis Nan Johnson sitting, having their breakfast. And he, of course, was one of the very important uh, early uh, presidents, I think, of the RHA. Yeah, second uh, president, yeah, yes. And, yeah. and, and and talking about all the funding difficulties. And that is a very traditional way of telling the history, but cleverly Anne Lux is reading from the newspaper, so she's reading about what the papers are saying about him. But the one that really caught my eye, one of the types of telling the story that really caught my eye is In the Evenings by Gaslight. Yes. This is a series <laughs> of 100 rhetorical questions. What story are you telling and why did rhetorical questions suit the telling of this story? OK, I love this story. <laughs> so, I mean, I wasn't aware of this until I looked properly into the history. But um, in eight, around in December of 1856, a kind of a battle began within the RHA. And by all accounts, there had been mismanagement of the money up, you know, up to this point. And the RHA had suffered very badly post-famine as well. So, you know, things weren't going well. Um and essentially what happened in 1857 is the RHA ended up with two competing presidents, with two competing secretaries who were backing the two presidents. And this huge row between the two parties played out in the newspapers. And the language and the, the affront <laughs> is just really, really funny and amusing. Um, and you have this very strong personality of Michelangelo Hayes. So he was the secretary. He was backing uh, Martin Cregan for president. Um, and we had George Petrie, who was the other president. Mm. Um, and basically they were doing things like, you know, excluding. So Petrie was excluded on this small little bylaw, which was that he hadn't exhibited for two years, but also because he was a watercolour yeah. painter and you were meant <laughs> to be an oil painter to be part of the yeah. RHA. So there's all these things. So the reason I took this idea of, of asking only questions was if you tell that story in a very sort of fact-based way, it becomes a very dry historical yeah. story. But in fact, it's a story about personalities, very strong personalities. And so that chapter is just really me in an almost yeah. schoolmarmish way saying, Michael, Angelo Hayes, what were you up to? You know, yeah, but it's also a <laughs> it's kind the tone of, of it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a touch of the courtroom drama about it, and the the arch, bit. the archness of a barrister, perhaps a, a barrister who, who has oratorical flourishes, oratorical flourishes. Well, let me exactly. Ask you, yes. Let me ask you about another story, though, within the book that I thought was very clever as well. They will not mix is a short story about William Osborne, Osborne rather, and his sister Violet. This is set in 1893, and this yeah. is just one of the stories that touches on the whole gender issue. That's right. This is actually one of my favourite chapters of the book. Um, they will not mix is actually a phrase that I took from some uh, some of the documents that I looked at and it was something that was said about the addition of the women to the life room that women were allowed to come mm. in now and, and work in the RHA school and learn and and it was said then that the men wouldn't mix with the women. So I mean this is obviously one person's perceptive, perception of it but what I did was I looked at the National Gallery of Ireland archives and within the National Gallery of Ireland collection there are these two very interesting photographs which Walter Osborne wrote on the back of and posted to his sister Violet in 1893 and she was in Canada she'd emigrated um, and she was in Canada and she was pregnant at the time and 
this chapter really imagines a conversation between the two of them that he's writing to his sister and she's away in the National Gallery of Ireland collection. There are also some sketches by Violet Osborne, mm. um, which you can still, all of these archives are digitised. So it's very easy for anybody to look look up. The material in the book hopefully will send people to the archives because you can yeah. look all of this up. But that story for me was a story about love between a brother and a sister. He was significantly older than her. And, um, and of course, his family ended up minding her, her daughter, daughter, Violet, who people may recognise from many of his paintings. Oh. She's the baby in so many yeah. of his paintings. One final question. Physician, heal, thy, heal thyself is a phrase that is often used. Critic, Criticise thyself. Tell me yes. about the Dear Dorothy chapter. <laughs> Dear Dorothy. OK, so, you know, I suppose my practice is as an art critic um, and I've been writing for more than 20 years about art, um, particularly in, in newspapers. So writing for the Sunday Times and Dorothy Walker was a Sunday Times art critic too. This chapter, which is chapter nine, it's set in 1997. Um, and in 1997, the RHA asked a group of newspaper art critics to select their ideal academy yeah. to, to invite people in um, to show their work. So this chapter imagines a letter to Dorothy. So it's called Dear Dorothy and it's a convers- it's an imagined conversation that I'm having yeah. with her. But it includes reviews of all of the annual exhibitions right. throughout the 200 yeah. years. It's very clever and as are some of the other chapters, many of the other chapters as well. It's a wonderful way to tell the history and congratulations uh, Thank on, you. on the book indeed. That's Christine Leach from, till, from 10 Till Dusk published by the Royal Hibernian Academy of Arts. And just as we finish up, the winner of the 2023 Turner Prize has just been announced. Jesse Darling, Darling Sculptures and Drawings Explore Identity. Suitably enough, given what we were just discussing through gender, sexuality, disability, love and compassion. That's Jesse Darling, winner of the 2023 Turner Prize. And that is our lot for this Tuesday evening. Leah Murphy and Niall Fitzmaurice were the uh, researchers. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Mark McGrath was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by Kay Sheehy. Talk to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.